That was the most zen start to a recording ever. Live from not Hollywood and live from kind of near Hollywood. Uh, this is Jonathan Fight, uh, co-founder and chief executive of Beyond Lucid Technologies. And I am thrilled to bring you another uh, podcast of Sacred Cows and Data Cubes for the Journal of Emergency Medical Services with the truly inimitable and very fancy Danielle Thomas. Hi, Danny. Hi. So I am beyond excited to have you here today, um, particularly because just before we got started, Danny explained to me and the equally inimitable Mr. Editor Jeff Frankel that she particularly likes to have warning and be able to prepare for whatever is going to be tossed her way now. And I adamantly refuse to do that. So how, how are you feeling right now? You're <laughs> so welcome. You ready? Okay. So what I think what we want to talk about today, I I there are a lot of people out there who know you in different aspects of your career. And what I try to do in this conversation, as possibly relayed by the totally subtle is is we talk about things that are fairly geeky. We talk about data, we talk about technology. We talk about, in its broadest form, innovation. And since before you and I met, and then when you and I met, um, and every day since, I have been floored by the degree of creativity that emanates from Danny Thomas. So, um, and I think that's a fascinating thing because again, a lot of people, I thought a lot of people knew me. And then I put out announcement about this discussion with you today and you tagged onto it, it blew up. So clearly there are a lot of people who know you from all over the place in different places. And so I feel like what we wanna talk about today is how your brain works. Um, and, and if that sounds as broad as it's going to be, I think it should be. And that's fascinating to me. And I know there are gonna be people who listen to this conversation and we're gonna take it in some interesting places. So I'm gonna first, in a moment, hand to you and ask you to tell us about yourself, but we're gonna make this as Los Angeles as possible. And mind you, I am an Angelino who is not in LA now, but my family's in LA and I grew up in LA and I grew up miles, a couple miles from Hollywood. So there is one particular special breed of human that exists pretty much exclusively in Southern California. And that's effectively known as the hyphenate. And you, my friend, are a hyphenate. Have you heard of a hyphenate in your Los Angeles time yet? So a hyphenate is, for example, a model-actor or a writer-actor or a actor-waiter. <laughs> or you're a hyphenate, right? You're not just one thing. You can't just be one thing. So when I think of you, I think of you're a clinician, you're an operator, you're a manager, you are a big thinker, you are a leader, and you are an entrepreneur and an educator. And so you are like six hyphens. And so with that background, tell us a little bit about Danny Thomas, where you're from. We can't judge by talking. You're talking it because I haven't let you speak. Um, so we'll figure it out in a second. But tell us about you, 
tell us where you are now. Tell us how you got there. And then we're going to dig into some cool conversation. I feel like you predicted I'd have the worst Boston accent you've ever heard in your life. But luckily, I hide it every if now and again. If you're thinking, you're in the right city. Sorry, good. Although, although I'm proud of it. So uh, born and raised in Massachusetts in the Boston area and relocated out here about 10 months ago to the Los Angeles area uh, to work for Lifeline EMS out here in LA County and Orange County. And it was a, a big step. And I'm proud to say that it's been a really amazing experience. Uh, been in the EMS space for 15 years now, um, uh, second career for me. So was originally interested in international relations, a little bit of medicine, but actually got into the retail space where I worked for some big box retailers for a long time, several years, Abercrombie & Fitch, Gap Inc., et cetera. And then owned a women's boutique just north of Boston for about four years before I made the change into EMS. And that's the fancy, right? So that's, <laughs> that's how you can, you can do the, the fancy. fancy. Yeah. Right, that's um, the fancy. Keep going. And uh, leapt into being an EMT, quickly went to paramedic school, uh, worked for an amazing organization in Cambridge called Professional Ambulance Service for almost 10 years, where uh, they believed in me and was able to experience several different aspects of IFT world, of 911 world, of urban EMS, of collaboration with local municipalities, and then on the federal level and doing some international medicine as well. And that was really my stepping off point to where I am now. Okay. So clearly there's a lot in there. See, hyphen it. I was right. That is a very fair description. So why don't we start with the fact that this was a second career? So you mentioned international, you mentioned medicine, and then you just sort of said, oh, and by the way, I went into retail. So, so there's a step there. Right? There's a bridge somewhere, I'm sure. So uh, why retail? How retail? Why fashion? I mean, entrepreneurship has been wisely, I think, described as a mental defect uh, that I suffer from, certainly. So um, why entrepreneur? And I know you also still do some uh, independent work and trainings and things like that. So you clearly got the streak. So so what made you decide to take like a 270 degree turn and end up in retail uh, of all entrepreneurial activities? What's the what's the link there? I think. A lot of people can feel this way about their EMS career. They start in something and then they end up staying or, or making it great or better than it was. And that's what happened to me in retail a bit. So I was involved as a high school career, uh, went down to college in Washington, D.C., continued to work for Abercrombie and kind of just went into the management side of things from there. I really liked it. I'm a very visual person. I love protecting the optics of something and I enjoy a very systematic approach. So you talk a little bit about how my brain works. I love a systematic approach to anything. So being responsible for uh, a store um, at any level, at any volume that you produce, um, you have product that comes in, you have product that goes on sale, you need to merchandise the old and make room for the new and do floor sets. And I love the visual merchandising aspect of it, uh, the design piece to it as well, and the ability to transfer those skills into driving revenue. And was successful in doing that throughout the years and um, morphed into, uh, I guess, more of an entrepreneurial 
uh, outcome with the owning of the, the women's store. Um, and that was a huge challenge because I was able to take on the additional things that I knew nothing about as most younger business owners kind of dive in as much as they research um, you go through a pretty significant learning when you're in that space uh, by yourself, even with a support system. And uh, that was an amazing experience for me as well. It, it grabbed all of the great things from being in those bigger box retailers and those more traditional settings um, into something that was uh, more, more for me and my family and uh, catered to uh, a certain type of clientele in a certain place to make women uh, feel really great about themselves and feel positive and have a good image um, and just feel confident. And that's that's really why I kept in it for those few years. Um, I brought the things that I liked and I turned it into something that I felt would be very valuable to the community. Awesome. Well, I'm, I'm not going to let you just brush past that because you said two things right there that, I mean, there's so much in what you just described, obviously, as far as working with people and finding the purpose and so on. But two things that you just said that I think have an enormous resonance to the mobile medicine profession. Uh, there's a lot in there, but one was making room for the new, because the idea of sort of merchandising and then driving revenue. And obviously those are two areas uh, that get talked about an enormous amount. In fact, this morning, there was a National Association of EMS Physicians conference call where folks were talking about what it means to be an essential service. And one of the challenges that came up in that conversation, and I'm going to put, I'm going to put this out, so stick a pin in it, we'll come back to it. But, but it was essentially how the changing nature of this profession and its work is not necessarily being abided by the ecosystem, the payment models, the the you know the the asks for service, and then at the same time, I, I I couldn't help noticing that so many of the people who were speaking on that webinar are people who have been around this profession for like thirty years, right? And and that's a very difficult thing to expect somebody who has spent so much of their career to do is to say, and now I'm gonna right and do things a whole different way. And so I think there's an enormous amount in what you just said in terms of the discussion about innovation and again, how your brain works. So I'm gonna stick a pin in that for a second, but I want you to explain as sort of a bookend on this idea that you decided to go from the Abercrombies and so on to what made you decide to do it on your own? Retail like restauranting um, is an extremely, like other ventures, but even I think higher, is an extremely high risk uh, uh, endeavor, right? Uh, you know what? Tell us some a little bit of the war story. Tell me, but you know what? What made you decide? Like, I've done this. I think I can do it differently. I want to make people feel good. Everything you just said, but I'm going to do it on my own and assume that risk. And kind of, what was your thought process? What was your, uh, what were the steps that you took? Because uh, again, I think people do that certainly in, in in mobile medicine, right? Folks start ambulance services. I'm working inside a service. I think I can do something differently. What was your what was your aha moment? And then, and then also kind of the bookend on that experience that made you say, maybe I'm, maybe I'm going to go, go change courses again. That's a lot in that question. Yeah. So let me try to break it down. Yeah. Art for that. All right. So if Three I. Three pieces, right? What made you, what made you go oh, big box independent and then independent to 
what's next? Because again, I see a thread of you and innovation for a mission underneath everything that you're talking about. And I'm very interested in how that translates to your purpose, both then and now. I continue to make so many mistakes every day. Some of them matter more than others, and some of them no one would ever know about, and I give myself a hard time. I think back to all those years ago when I was a lot younger and didn't know what I know now. And that's that's such a cliche because, you know, as parents, we try to teach our kids, oh, you know, learn from my mistakes, or we're learning from our sisters or our friends, and it just, it never is the same unless you experience it. So I made a lot of mistakes and I did a lot of great things as well. And I would do it very much differently now, but the spirit behind it, I guess it's the same because that's how I've always been. I didn't take the leap to do that because I was dissatisfied with the career I had because it was no risk. I would go into work. I would get a plan of execution. I would get the new product delivery. I would manage the people. I would work with the customers. We would meet or exceed our goals. We would set some new goals. We were operators. We were merchandisers. We were creative. It was all of that good stuff. But I think that I needed to take that next level and figure out or try to learn the things that I didn't know. So it's often that I'll get good at something. doesn't matter what it is because you do it you, you know, through repetition, muscle memory, you, some people have a knack for some things and not for others. And then it's, it turns into an art form for you and you execute it and you're happy because of that. But then there comes a point, and this has happened several times in my career, whatever I was doing, that I got a little bit, um, I won't say bored, but I'll say the lack of challenge was less fulfilling. And I typically find success through work. And I know there's a whole, you know, work-life balance controversy and you do you and, you know, self-care and it takes some time for yourself. But I've always been like that. And I think I always will be. The cool thing about my family and friends is that I'm transparent about that and they know that. And so I'm accepting for it, which is great. Um, so having the store morphed into a fulfillment of a dream, I really liked fashion and I wanted to do the merchandising piece and all the things I said before. A woman was selling her store just north of the city, uh, had been in business for 20 years and had a completely different business model. And the easiest way was to purchase the store and then uh, go through a transition period, which happened pretty quickly, um, which uh, wasn't wasn't the budgeted plan, um, but you know, blew it up and changed it completely and was really successful um, for the time that I had the store. I liked it and I didn't get out of it because I didn't like it or it was unsuccessful. I got out of it because I had a medical emergency myself while I was at a buying show in New York City uh, one year and um, 2007, um, and it uh, quickly escalated to having to call 911 for the first time, which was something that I never did, I never witnessed, my family luckily never needed to uh, use the services, and it was one of the worst experiences that I've ever gone through, and not just because I was sick and had this thing wrong with me, uh, the whole experience I immediately correlated back to a customer experience as the patient, and for me, I just hung on to what I knew in that moment. And looking back at it, it wasn't a great customer experience. And there were several aspects of it that made it a poor experience for me. And over the past several years, specifically in healthcare and other industries, even prior to COVID, we're very much focused on the customer experience and customer satisfaction. And this just didn't 
forget about meeting my expectations because I didn't have any, but it just went in the opposite direction. So I morphed those two things together. And um, looking back at it a couple months later, when I got well, said, how do I prevent that from happening to another patient, which I thought was a customer? And how could that have gone differently? And what do I need to do to do that? So that was the catalyst that, uh, or the reason I started EMT school at Northeastern and did an accelerated six or seven week program one summer as soon as I got better. And uh, then started working at EMS, sold the store and ended up in uh, emergency medical services, which was a, a completely different place. But to this day, I think of it the exact same way as I did about my other job or any job that I've ever had, which is the patients like my customer, and the team members or employees are the team members and whatever, if it's a delivery of service or a delivery of product, uh, you're ultimately to stay in business, you're selling or delivering something for uh, reimbursement of some sort to keep afloat. And I've always correlated those two things together. Uh, so I think about this job the exact same way I thought about that one. Awesome. So first of all, because you went to Northeastern and I went to BU, I have to ask, where's your bean pot? Where is it? The, the Huskies will win, so don't worry. It's fine. Uh, you said Terrier Pride. So, um, the, um, no, I think, it, you know, really interesting when you reference the customer experience. Um, you said you had never experienced an ambulance service prior to that. So, when you think about one of the, one of the challenges that I, I find myself also with a client or partner or customer mentality is wondering the degree to which the public understands or doesn't understand what happens in this profession. Right? What made you confident that the unfortunate experience you had had in that moment was not normal? As opposed to, well, this sucks, but you know, I called for help and that's kind of kind of going to be bad anyway. So in other words, if you, if you walk into a luxury store, right, maybe your expectation is someone brings you a, a cup of champagne or an espresso or something, right? But if you're, if I, I think this is certainly not a mobile, mobile medicine question per se. I, I will tell you, I was in uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico. I went to uh, uh, some, some, a visit, actually a site visit at the University of New Mexico Hospital which is a massive public hospital. Basically, I think it's the only, one of, if not the only trauma center in the state of New Mexico. And I have to tell you, after having lived in New York and Boston and LA and Pittsburgh, and having been all over the place, I had never seen so many broken people in one place as I saw at this hospital, right? It was safety net, it was trauma, it was, it was all of it, right, in one place. And I remember thinking, that sucks. but. If you are, if you are treating that many unfortunate people in one place for a wide range of unfortunate reasons, what do you expect? And obviously, that's a very big conversation around healthcare right now. Right, it's the idea that you can go into a hospital that is spent like Kaiser Permanente and Providence and so these others that are spending enormous amounts of money on making rooms wonderful, and then you have other places that are closing down because they don't have enough money to seismically retrofit themselves. So this question of the economics of the customer experience in healthcare is a very big topic right now. What made you think that this unfortunate experience 
could be made better. I wouldn't say I respectfully disagree, but I don't Tell agree. Me. You don't I have to agree with me. I'm not looking for a yes woman. <laughs> level setting expectations is crucial. Yeah. And Tell every me. time I've been frustrated or what's a better word, challenged in an environment is because the expectation was one way and then the delivery was a different way. So I understand what you're saying. And we try to do that in our business here and every place that I've you know been a part of yep. the, the, what I oversaw or who I led or managed or you know was on the front lines with. We, we try to level set that expectation very clearly. And we talk about whether we're orienting people or we're upstanding a new program. We talk about, okay, let's be very clear about what the expectations are. So there's no question at the end of the day that you will be held accountable to these expectations. And if the organization or a leader chooses not to hold people accountable, then it's a leadership problem. But when the organization says, this is our mission, vision, and values, and we're rolling this out, and here's our expectation, you, you uphold that and can hold people accountable to that structure. I'll give you an example. I often say the term good, kind, human. And I mean it. Being a good kind you human. One. You're wonderful. Okay, keep being going. a good kind human is at the core of what we do here. And at a couple of other organizations that I've worked with, we've thrown out this term. And I've taken it with me because I think it means everything. And it's not just because we're in EMS and it's a community sport. It's that being a good kind human and choosing to be a good person, regardless of the circumstances or the decisions that you have to make sometime, it's at the core of who you are. We set that expectation very clearly. I go into every orientation and I say, we have a no jerk policy. You have to be a good kind human. And let me tell you what that means. Let me tell you and give you examples of how that pertains to our, um, you know, hospital partners, municipal partners, uh, your partner on the, the ambulance, your patients, of course, which is our biggest filter of, of how we do everything in EMS, or it should be. And I, I give them different examples of things that they might experience and the choices that they can make and what the choice to be a good kind human would be and the opposite would be and what the repercussions for choosing not to be a good kind human or at a minimum making the best decision with the information they have at the time that leads to being a good kind human with the patient as a filter, right? So that being said, I disagree with that an expectation can't be met, but I think the reality is your expectation might not be met for certain reasons. So an EMS even before the pandemic, but then obviously heading into the pandemic, we were challenged with number of resources who wanted to work in the traditional ambulance space, transporting patients. As people got sicker and the pandemic hit, the amount of resources they needed was above and beyond the amount of resources EMS providers had or some EMS providers had. And it's an, a national issue that everyone's been talking about, recruitment, retention, 30% providers left during COVID, blah, 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 right? So, the delivery of service that the hospital thought, just talk about IFT for a second, is, you know, we wanted you at 1400 and you were late. Okay, well, we could have been late because we didn't manage our system well, or our board well, or we could have been late because these six providers called out today because they got COVID or well, you get the point. Insert all of the examples here. I think you know where I'm going with that. So expectation and level setting really comes down to communication. So if you proactively communicate in a transparent manner, the expectation can fluctuate, right? So my expectation of calling the 911 system 
I, I don't know what it was, but I don't think it had to be anything, to be honest with you. I think that how it felt in the moment as a person was awful. Now, I didn't know what it was supposed to be like, but I don't know that that matters because it just felt awful, right? And it's not like I have this high expectation of, you know, you're going to carry me out on a diamond studded stair chair, right? I didn't even know what a stair chair was, but I know that I felt unsafe and I know that it was awful. And I know that what people said to me and the way that it was handled and everything just didn't feel good. And I'm not, I'm, I don't like to hug people. I'm not a touchy feely person. Like I'm not into like, let me get into touch with my feelings. That's just not me. I don't, I don't talk about things like that. Right. I probably should, but I don't. You're doing pretty well at it right now. Oh, thanks. <laughs> but anyway, long story less long. It didn't. I love right. it. So regardless right. of an expectation that I did have, or I didn't have, you walk into a restaurant, what are you, what's your expectation of service? The whole, you pay, you know, you get what you pay for. Like, I, I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Right. So if I walk into a, a fast food restaurant and I'm paying $5 for something, do I have the same expectation of service when I walk into a five-star or a Michelin star restaurant and I'm paying more if I ever had that opportunity to do so. Right. That, that that's just I don't know I know common sense isn't so common anymore but that just makes sense to me like level setting expectations it, it does I, I I think it's interesting because the inverse is just as interesting and let me also point out that long story less long is one of my favorite Dannyisms that I have now adopted many a time I can't take credit for it I, it's well, not fine. mine is the other person that told it to you or is it is it a Dannyism because that just really rolls off the tongue is like an easy thing that it, we'll have a list of I'll give official credit to John Casey. It's not mine, John. There you go. Copy that. So, so I, I think the reason why it's so interesting, and again, I want to try, I'll transition us through this question to the discussion of innovation, because I do think that that is something you are especially good at. And and speaking of credit, there's another person in Massachusetts who's Chief John Deckers of the Westwood Fire Department, who I had a chance to, I mean. Besides the fact that I've gotten to know him very well, I interviewed him and wrote an article uh, for Gems about him. Uh, I think I believe it was uh, the most unusual pedigree in in EMS and fire was the title of the article. Jeff can confirm for me the exact title. Um, but he made a statement in in the context of our discussion that I think ties really to you and to this topic of expectation, which is the idea that folks who come into this profession from another profession are an extremely valuable group, right? And, and he is one of those people and he talks about the value of being, and I, notice I will not refer to this in terms of degrees. I think that is a whole education conversation in, in this profession is filled with red herrings. And I only have three degrees. So, you know, we can take that for it as you got a couple yourself. So you know, the, the, but, but the perspective that you get from having been somewhere else whether it's having a degree in psychology or in art history or having worked in a nursing home or having worked in retail and dealt with customer service or worked in other areas of government. Um, those, uh, let me put the title here. Oh, okay, thanks. Um, so the title of the article is in the Facebook comments for those who are watching. So, so the, the idea that you will encounter lots of different things. And thank you, the most unusual leadership pedigree in pre-hospital care. Thank you. Uh, find it online at gems.com. Um, I think I couldn't agree more with that statement that you never know what you're going to find in any given call, right? You may you may show up, and I have had some really interesting lessons relayed to me 
for example, about the importance of cultural sensitivity, right? Gender, religion, language, right? There are parts of Los Angeles, Pico Robertson, for example, where if you try to go into the religious Jewish area to take care of somebody on a Friday evening, you're not getting in the door, right? So, um, right, because, or, or they're not going to call you in, in some cases, right? There are other cases where if you look a certain way, right, or if you're a certain gender, or if you're wearing a certain shield on your on your uh, uh, uniform, right? The, the sensitivities that are nonverbal, right? the ability to pick those up from having been in other working environments, life environments, school environments is really interesting. So what you described is a feeling of what's good, right? And, and being good. And again, I think good, that mentality, as, as hokey as it sounds, and innovation as a pursuit of excellence and something that is better go really interestingly together, right? The idea, if, if you are comfortable with everything you have right now, you don't need to innovate. Before we talk about what allows you to use those different perspectives to see around corners in a way that I find fascinating, as a technologist, fascinating, but also as an organizational leader, answer me a difficult question, which is be good, be kind, I describe our profession as having a niceness problem, right? People show up for 11 bucks an hour. They complain about it, but they still do it, right? They, they show up in some cases for no money because it's the right thing to do because somebody would get hurt otherwise. If you are willing to work the hours and go through everything that it takes to be in this business, in this industry, profession, et cetera, and you have, as you've described, a jar overflowing with, let's call it care to give, it was they were they were a different four letter word. It wasn't care, but you like how I did that, keeping yeah. Jeff out of trouble. <laughs> so if you have a jar overflowing with care to give, and you are in this industry, profession, discipline, you are willing to work the hours that it requires of you. Why not be that? Right? Why are there agencies that don't aspire? to the level of excellence you're describing, other than if they truly can't, right? Like, because they, they have one ambulance and it's losing a wheel and it was donated 10 years ago. Like that's a bit of an exception. But I'm talking about the places where you look at this person and say, what are you doing? This is too hard, a, 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 a day job for the amount of care that you don't clearly have. Why bother? Riddle me that. And then, and then we'll go from that to how you get even better, which is where your innovation mindset comes in. It's a choice. And some leaders or managers, business owners, executives, boards, choose that that's going to be their pathway. Some like to say that it's their pathway, their mission, their vision, their values, but they don't execute against that. And I, I think that key learnings for me along the way have been your integrity and your word is much more important to your $11 an hour, hopefully not anymore, team member than you think. Because that's a human who comes and gives themselves to your organization, whether it's for the community and the calling and the greater good that so many people think EMS is, or they needed a job, or they fell into it, or it's their second or third job, whatever the circumstance, because there's so many out there, too many to list. It's a choice. You use the word hard. I would describe it as, I don't know, what's the word? I, I, 
more than hard, exceptionally hard, so difficult, like the most difficult thing I've ever been involved in. And it's exhausting. Leadership development and doing the right thing shouldn't be hard. And you can see every magnet and every meme and every bumper sticker that's like, oh, you know, be kind and be good. And it's not hard. It's really hard to make decisions that impact people's lives internally in your organization, externally, to the scale that EMS does. And you'll pay the person, I'll use your $11 an hour, you'll pay the person whatever you pay the person. But the person who makes 11 versus the person who makes 20, there's so many studies that will show that wasn't a driving force for why that person left. But that's what I want to push on. Let's push on that, right? Because I'm thrilled that you went there and I didn't know you were going to go there, but I should have expected it. Um, no, that's that's exactly where I would hope that this would go. And I and if it hasn't already pissed off people in the comments, let, let's hope it does for infamy forever. Because again, I mentioned red herrings, right? This is this is a really important topic, right? The the inflation is real, right? But I don't think, and it sounds like you agree, people do not get into this profession for the money. And so it's an interesting dichotomy of, on the one hand, if you pay people $50 an hour, $100 an hour, $100 an hour, right? Do the do you get a different caliber of person, which I'm not sure you do. I'm not sure you want the caliber of person that you get because their motivations may be misaligned with the mission that you describe. And do you end up in a situation where you are you are you are chasing the wrong prize, right? Where if if somebody, I, I feel like any anyone who thinks that attracting talent, whether it's technology talent, economic talent, administrative talent, or clinical talent, if they think that's easy, they should sit where you and I sit. But it is not easy. Um, so why is it? That A, again, I want to I want to push on this idea of like, why bother? Because it is exceptionally hard. And so if you're going to be a four-letter word, whatever, and 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 like you're probably, unless you're a sociopath or you're crazy, you're probably looking not to work in the hardest environment imaginable, right? Somebody who wants to work but who doesn't want to commit to doing the hard work probably doesn't go to become a nuclear physicist. Like that's not, that's not their gig, right? So if you are willing to work 24s and overtime to the point where you're working, you know, 50 hours in a weekend when you should have been off and you're wearing Tyvek from edge to toe, you're probably not in it for the $20 an hour. It's like there's something else driving you. So if you are the person who doesn't give a crap, about what about being excellent why stay i think that's a fascinating thing because i tend to see people as fundamentally good right my wife likes to tell me that i get disappointed because i see people as good and some people aren't and so i'm doomed to that but i don't care i mean the west wing's my favorite show uh so you know to the degree that that i think that ultimately people left to their own devices will do good things this profession is is has a higher concentration of angels than almost any other if you are not one of them why be here because all you're going to do is overwork mm, I, and yes. underperform presumably what 
when I started here, a very inspiring colleague to me said in a conversation that we were having about, well, they just, you know, are good kind humans, we'll be fine. And these are the, the best group of people that I've ever worked with. She said, they'll break your heart a million times about our EMTs, right? Because the decision-making and the choices that they end up executing on are not maybe the ones that I would want, right? So it ties back in. I think that there's several groups of people that we're talking about and we can't generalize them. So there is the person motivated financially. Um, there are people who pick up overtime shifts because they want to save or they need the money or they need to get food tomorrow, right? These are the realities that we've all dealt with or deal with in our lives, right? So there is that one group. Is it why they got into it? Probably not because you can go and make equal or more amount of money from home these days or doing other things. Yeah. So maybe that's not it. But you have a group of people, a very large group of people who find themselves in EMS. And I think the industry referred to it previously as a stepping stone. And I was always really offended by that because I wanted to mm -hmm. stay in EMS and, you know, oh, I'm just going to step right here and then move on because I'm going to be better than this or better than you. And you have a group of people that from an educational standpoint are meeting a requirement of getting patient contact hours for PA school or medical school or to make themselves a more attractive applicant, right? So you have that group of people who will do the job for, we'll call it your $11, uh, just because they need you to get to the next step. And I like to think as EMS now more foundational than a stepping stone and that whether people try to stay in EMS or progress within EMS um, or become a provider at a higher level of care within EMS or the healthcare industry as a whole, we are a crucial part of the healthcare continuum. And I think that's, that's important. So motivation is, I think we could probably group it eight to 10 different categories, but we're talking about a specific group of people who are in EMS, maybe for a reason, but they can go to any organization, right? So let's just like level the playing field and say, regardless of the reason they're in EMS, why do they work for less money they could get down the street? Or yep. why do they leave their organization and go to a different organization, fair? Yep. So that group of people, and I've talked to a lot of people and tried to get a lot of feedback and some I agreed with and some I initially didn't agree with just because it wasn't my line of thought, but I've had a pretty eye-opening experience over the past several years of my career in, in, in EMS. Um, and I think that culture, true good culture and something that you're, you're driving towards the same goal and it's a good goal and every step of the way the filters are correct and you just do the best you can every day and try to be better tomorrow is a place that people can align with so whatever generation people are in because there's all these experts who are saying oh well if they're millennials or if they're gen zers or this is how you want to communicate to them and i know that i created leadership training myself that defined that and said try this with this age group and i always had the caveat that this is a generalization, right? But I, I think there's something to be said with the experience I had when I started in EMS as a third rider and the whole, you know, don't talk until you're spoken to and this, you know, good old club and how it was. And it's very, very different now. The people who are coming in have a different expectation. You mentioned that uh, you had some key learnings around gender identity and some other things that you talked about. 
uh, last night we did a remote Zoom class for the organization about awareness for EMS and first responders in the LGBTQA+. I hope I said that right. Uh, I, I is the last one. I, I thank you. I, A, A, I plus um, community. And uh, I, I'm very open to learning about things, but I almost had this ignorance unintentionally because I just didn't grow up in a time where it is like we are now. And I was having a conversation with some of my colleagues who are from California. They said, oh, we learned that in high school. You don't learn that? And I was blown away, like, oh my God, you learned this in high school? Like, that's fantastic. But me being so far into my career now and being older, much older than some of the EMTs who are starting here, we're completely disconnected. And mm. it's our job as an organization to have a ready program to make sure that uh, diversity- And I wanted to talk to you about that. Yeah, yeah keep going. Fostered, right? And this was one of the steps that we took to, to put it out there. And it was, I walked away from this hour and a half session, two hour session, like, oh my God, I just learned so much, like the definitions and things like that. And as long as you're open to it. So I bring this back to, you know, is it hard for people to change? You had people who were on the conference call this morning who have been in the industry for 30 years, right? And is it too hard to expect them to change their mindset? It's really difficult sometimes to not do what you did before. I was trained on a life path monitor. I could go from the 12 to 15, no problem. You switched me to Zoll and I thought the world ended, right? It's what you know, it's how you learn. But being adaptive, is part of being a good leader and trying to seek out the things that you don't know is required to be successful. So why do people stay at a place for $11 an hour or leave for 10 in our little example here, that's mm -hmm. unrealistic now. Mm -hmm. It's because they align their mission, vision, and values, or somebody went out of their way, or someone took a minute to stop and say, how are you? And they actually cared about the answer. Awesome. Everything that we can do is a choice and making choices that are take more of your time or are more difficult for you as the leader. Absolutely a thousand percent end up in people's loyalty and trying to move the mission forward. Awesome. And I, it, it, that should align to what I, I, I hear it a lot. And I, I don't think people necessarily internalize these types of things until they really pause to think about it. How Someone may not remember five years from now, 20 years from now, what you said, what you wore, what you looked like, um, but they'll remember how you made them feel, right? And and that, that, that personality aspect that sinks in beyond the verbal, beyond the explicit. Um, like I said, I want to talk about innovation, and you mentioned the READY program, and that's one thing I wanted to highlight. So I have Tourette syndrome. Um, I think everybody who knows has met me for more than 30 seconds at this point knows that uh, if I look twitchy on your screen, don't adjust your monitor. It's you, not me, I promise. Um, I bang on this probably more than I should, but I get very upset. Well, there's a question for you in the chat. Let's make sure we come to that. Um, I got about another two questions or so, and then we'll, we'll look at that. So, up here in the Bay Area and across the country, the topic of diversity, uh, equity, and inclusion, DEI, right, is a big topic. Um, first of all, innovation doesn't have to be technology, right? And the adding of the R in front of that is something I noticed. So uh, R, I believe you have a stand for race, right? Correct. 
Ready for anything. See, look at that. We're talking about ready. Look at that. You're good. I thought you had a power outage or something, but somehow your monitor's stayed on. Um, is it so, sustainable? I, I love it. I love it. So first of all, you know, process improvement is a form of innovation, right? But but diversity goes beyond the skin and uh, and it goes beyond the genders, right? In, in Los Angeles, there has been a wonderful movement that I take personally, which essentially says you can't have diversity without disability, right? And and I, I bang on this a lot because and like to, not everybody with a disability has a dog or a wheelchair or a tip cane or anything like that, right? Or autism or is too short or right? there's all sorts of, of there's a whole range in there, right? Um, and I was very, I was very, I don't know if touched is the right word, but I was very impressed, I guess, at the idea that your employer, so Lifeline, has a program that you've renamed. And and you also probably down the hall from you have a sleep pod that I haven't yet written about, but uh, there are photos, I, I promise. It's a meditation uh, pod, not a sleep There you pod. go, it's a meditation pod. So, so I, when I was in your office and I had a chance to see this pod, I, I didn't particularly care about the pod, I thought it was entertaining. Uh, and to see the boots coming out of the box, like there again, I, I maybe the photos will find their way into the chat or something. Uh, but it, it was very interesting to me to see the types of steps that an organization can take to try to engage with its team members and that those decisions are unbounded. So when you make the decision, both you as an individual, you as a leader, you as a member of a team to say, you know what, using DEI, that's not enough for us. Or if giving people an hour or you know time to have a quiet room where they can have their lunch, that's not enough. We're gonna invest in something. What's the approach, what's the mentality and, and even the deliberation, if there is one, that, that you say, this is where we're gonna focus our innovative energies because the status quo, even if that status quo is deemed innovative by people who are saying DEI is now a big deal, and you said that's not enough. We have to keep going. What what's the driver to say? I want to go one step further. Obviously, I think it ties into things like customer service and all that. But you know, tell me sort of how you guys broach that topic and and what the criteria are to tell you this is where we focus. We have two interesting, three interesting departments here. One that's uh, performance improvement, which focuses on CQI and QA, and not just clinical of our life in general. We have a special programs and projects department, and then we have a, um, a process improvement department, which was new, which is new. So all three things work in collaboration as um, these three managers who are kind of like this, this pod, right? Use pod. Um, their ability, it, it's, it's not me, it's them. Their amazing ability with the rest of the team to listen and keep their ears to the ground and their boots on the ground as to what could potentially be important to people. So often you'll send out a climate survey and you'll get some data back and it's only as good as the input of the data and the amount of people that chose to do it. And occasionally you'll say, oh, okay, maybe I should pay attention to that because 30 people said X, Y, and Z. But sometimes it's maybe not that helpful. We, instead of sending out kind of larger surveys, 
we try to engage with people and embrace them for what they can bring to the table. And through those three departments as a support system for the operations of the agency and the clinical output of the agency and the, the uh, revenue driving of the agency or cycle of the agency, um, support all of those entities so we can be high performing or high functioning. Because you, you've made this statement about these three committees as if it's obvious to have those three committees. T t how did those three committees even happen? Does that in and of itself sounds like an innovative approach to understanding what's really happening on the ground? Carry on, but give me give me the layer below that. Like, how did you even say we need to do more than just check our EPCRs and send out a survey saying, are you happy? Yes or no. Because like, there's clearly you... a lot of work to do that. Good. Of course, but how if, if you choose to do better, how can you not? And you can't just arbitrarily say, I'm going to do better. You need some information that says what you need to do better on. So we have this gut instinct, right? This feeling, this anecdotal piece of life that we're like, oh, I think I got to do that. So I think I have to add another, another truck at 6 a.m., right? Then you have the flip side, which is I need to see the hardcore data from the source of truth to ensure that you know I can actually understand what's going on. And then you have the thing in the middle, and the thing in the middle is what I like. That's where I live. So I like your side and I have the other side, but I, I live in this place in the middle where it's situational and self-awareness. It's knowing how to read a room. It's actually listening, actively listening and understanding that I'm going to surround myself with people who are a whole lot smarter and a whole lot more diverse than anything I could possibly have in my brain. So when I say it's not me, it's them, I actually mean it's not me, it's them. Everything that I am saying to you is because we have embraced the ability for people to do the things that they do really well, well, and given them the climate and the uh, support that they need to say, you know what, there's a problem here. So it's two sorts of mentality where one is you have a problem and you're finding a solution. And then you should never try to search for a problem and create a solution, but shouldn't you, right? So like the preventative and the predictable nature of what we do is probably one of my number one filters. So my thought process is always the patient. So in the entirety of the business, every decision we make is how it affects the patient ultimately. And, you know, Richard Branson saying, well, if you take care, I'm going to misquote this, but you get the gist. If you take care of our employee, the employee is going to take care of the customer. It's no different in any, in any organization, right? So if we want the patient to ultimately be cared for well, safely, we need to have a culture where our team members know how to do that and get the things, the trainings that they need to know how to execute on that. We need to have a clear set of expectations. But it's ultimately a systematic approach to everything. So the filter is the patient. And then it's how are we going to be good, kind humans? And what do we need to execute on? And I learned early on in my career, Bill Morgendahl always said, just throw a bunch of stuff at the wall and see what sticks. And I always had this vision of like spaghetti going everywhere. I don't know why. But no, he, no was, he was really amazing at saying, like, what else? What else? What else? Put it all up and then let's almost perform this like differential diagnosis evaluation sure. and pull the things off the wall. It was like an AMLS course for operations, right? And then you end up with, well, let's try this. Well, what are the pros and cons? What can we do? What can we do? And then you get to a, a place where you have some things that don't drive results. However, you measure those, and that's important, right? You have to have a measurement system, KPIs, or whatever the hot term is now. You have to have some sort of measurement or evaluation in place. 
And if you don't, that's a problem. Never launch something without having the, the effective tools and measurements so you can evaluate after an appropriate amount of time and never give up on something too soon because that would be inappropriate too and a waste of your time, right? But all of these programs that we launch through these departments are because of the support of the chief executive officer there because of the grit that the, the people here, and I've worked at other organizations where this is the case as well. I think we all have the people here that I'm with now, fantastic team of people who just like want to get it done. And the whole, like, let me do better tomorrow. It's let us do better tomorrow in some way. Like, how can we do better? Love it. And so I got one more question. And I think it ties sort of a capstone on this. You're a very humble person, which I, I mean, I think everybody admires you, but the, I actually don't know anybody who's met you or knows of you that doesn't admire you. So take that for what it is. Um, in, a, in, a, in a profession with a lot of salty people. So um, the, the idea that you, you are very self-reflective, let's put it that way, right? And, and you just said, again, as I, I interrupted your, your thought a few minutes ago to, to talk about these pots, because I think to you, it comes very naturally to look at something and say, how can I possibly do this thing without thinking about it? When there's a lot of people who do things, not just in this world, but there's a, in, in all professions, there are people who do things by road or they do things because it seems easy or it's the path of least resistance and whatever. You are very self-reflective. And I have found both in our, in our conversations at an unconference in Napa Valley to in your office talking about technology, to outside Blue Bottle Coffee at Century City, um, that there are, you are equally reflective of this, of the workflows that happen. And I, I wanna I want to sort of, without getting into the specifics of, of, of tools and tech, because that, that's not for now, but you said something that was equally transformative to my thinking as something you just said a second ago, which is essentially how can you, how can you do X without thinking about it? Which not everybody thinks that deeply. It's just kind of the way the world. Uh, so we had been talking about wall times um, and the problems of wall times. And you, uh, it's not an uncommon conversation, certainly not in Southern California or anywhere in California, certainly not with all the discussions of post-COVID uh, backlog. And you said to me, possibly paraphrasing, but it's pretty close. I don't care about wall times. I can't solve wall times. So I'm not going to think about that. I'm going to think about what I can do down the line that will, by that action, improve wall time. Because you can't get what you specifically were talking about, the discharge process, the inner facility transport process, and how if you can't get the patient out more efficiently, then you can't move the patient up more efficiently, which means you can't get the patient off the stretcher more efficiently. But if you loosen the clog at the end, the pipe starts to flow. And a couple, maybe two months, two and a half months or so after you and I chatted about this, Ryan Greenberg, uh, the, uh, from the state of New York, I believe his official title is like EMS director for the state of New York. So nice, nice small gig, but said basically the exact same thing. And, and I thought it's tremendous to to hear that coming out of two people that I consider to be iconoclastic, so that was the, the, the title I affixed to you, right? You break molds. Ryan has broken many molds uh, in his career as well. 
uh, and he's not done just like you're not done. So I think this is a very exciting thing, but I wonder why more people don't think like that, right? You have a knack for looking around the corner, turning the globe 90 degrees and saying, uh, what, what we in business school, we used to refer to simply as reframing the problem, right? Shift the frame. And so you shift the frame, it turns out that you see something you didn't. I realize that people are busy. This, this profession is hard. Money is challenging. Words are stuck like reimbursement instead of compensation. I hope no one ever uses reimbursement in this world ever again. Um, and, and so, yes, those things are challenging. But what, what about you, your, whether it's an upbringing, a professional experience, maybe just the way your mind works because you came from another, you know, an artistic pursuit like fashion, which I think probably has a lot to do with this. Um, how is it that you're able to see things in a way that other people don't? Because one thing that you do especially well, I think, is look at something and say, I can't solve this, so I'm not going to bother. I'm going to do this thing, and I'm going to get there around the corner. Most people don't see the matrix in that way. And that was the way I described it in the stem to this discussion, right? I get a sense that you have a gift for seeing how, seeing the gestalt. Right, seeing how the lines and the dots are connected when there's white space in between them. But ultimately, you get where the world needs to go. And if you were going to not only reflect again on yourself, but look at others in this profession who are watching now, who will learn from you and want to follow that footstep, how did you gain the self-reflective ability to step back outside of the status quo and say, I see, and I find that fascinating. And I'd very much like to understand if you could bottle that. Right? So what would it? What would it? What would it be? What would it look like? The the ability to to look around the corner, shift, the, you know, turn the prism. Pick your analogy. I think it's your superpower. Um, and uh, and I I'm I'm very. I think there's a lot of people who can learn from that if they can learn how to do it, even a little bit. Well, I appreciate. That's a very question. long question. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate cool. your kind words. I know we're coming up short on time, so I'll be super brief. I can. One is a uh, No need to be brief. Jeff, Jeff, will, Jeff will let us keep going, right, Jeff? We're good. All right. So the first thing is um, something I learned about four and a half years ago um, from, uh, I guess, my best friend, uh, business partner, who we've made a business out of teaching and training tactical medicine. And his favorite saying is turn the map around and always looking at it from the other person's perspective or side before you make a decision that statement that. changed my life that thought process that we educate on and that I use in my business practice I use personally and it's helped me gain a lot of perspective and I encourage others to step back and gain perspective and be as self-aware as possible to view it from the other person's side so that's kind of the first thing the second thing or attribute is risk-taking, which can seem scary. And I actually um, took a risk a couple of days ago in a conversation with a group of our new paramedics when having a transparent conversation, which is how, how we do things. And I, I made a statement to them. And one of them, a 20-year, 19-year uh, paramedic here in the LA area said, no ex executive or no um, paramedic leader has ever admitted that before 
And I immediately, not on the outside, panicked that I had screwed up and done something wrong because he's worked seven, seven jobs with all of these different managers and, you know, as a powerhouse here and knew so much. And here I did something that he's never seen before. I must have screwed up. I must have made a mistake because why did all these other people not do that when it was kind of an obvious thing to me, but it was the truth, right? It was about how we operate our business and how, why it's a good idea. And he said that to me and I just kind of smiled and nodded and, and I obsessed about it for the last like 72 hours over the weekend because it's like, oh my God, I screwed up. I screwed up. But it was true and it was real and it was genuine and it was transparent. It was all those things that we say we're going to be. I'm so, so curious now. What's that? I'm so curious as to what it was. Anyway, keep going. So I, I risk take. The third thing is a systematic approach. So I did it in merchandising. And that, that is, that part is how my brain works. So I am more right brain, I think, than left brain, but my brain works that I can see the last thing that I need to do. So I'll give you a silly example briefly. If I have to set up a store and I'm getting a hundred cases of new shipment in, and I have a bunch of stuff that I have to move to set up the new floor set, I have to place that stuff first before I can roll out and gain my space to put the new product out, right? That makes sense to any shopper, right? So it's the same thing in everything I do. What's the last thing I need to do to get to the result? And I start there and the team starts there. So that's kind of the third thing. And the systematic approach piece got um, enhanced when I went to paramedic school and was lucky enough to work with a simulation expert who talked about the systematic approach. And it, it, it has stuck with me for the entirety of how I deal with a patient and then how I do everything in my life from you walk in, you have your general impression of the scene, you have your general appearance, you have your chief complaint, your HPI. Like I can, it's, it's how I do things, right? And I do everything like that, which probably bothers some people because I'm the type of person that you say, I say like, oh, hey, what time is it? And they say, oh, two o'clock and it's 1.58 and I like lose my mind about it, right? I'm very detail oriented like that. And that's definitely bothersome to some of my colleagues and friends, but it's a systematic approach of how I do medicine and how I operate in general. And I do have a hard time turning that off when I'm in like outside work, um, which is probably not the best, but that that's how, that's how I do things. Um, believing in others and developing them, I think lead, lends itself to innovation, right? It lends itself to being able to look at things around the corner, turn the map around and and try to say, all right, well, is it a problem or are we creating a problem by creating a solution to a problem that doesn't exist yet? Well, what, what could it be? My favorite way to do a synopsis of this piece is to say, well, often people say like, well, what if it doesn't work? And I say, what if it does? Love it. All right, let, let me, I'm gonna pause there with just a recommendation for you. And I said this to you once before, I think you should write a book. Um, since we, since I have, I still do. Since we have this recorded, I actually think you could probably turn this into some book proposal. But I do think what would actually be really helpful for this community and put your put your entrepreneurial dysfunction to work, um, it Gems has a book publishing division. FYI, look at that. You got your proposal in front of you, Jeff. Um, honestly, Danny, I think it would be a really interesting thing to, to have a, a, a set of tools, right? Maybe Maybe even like some templates that people could could go onto a website and grab or or hire you for an hour to walk them through. Uh, because what you're describing, I, I find myself as a writer 
I have a similar concept that I was taught at Cornell University, which is uh, like you were talking about CDN. You write your draft, you take your last paragraph, you put it to the top, and you start over, right? Because by the time you get to the end of the first time, you kind of know what you were trying to say. Um, and and it strikes me that what you're describing, like how to how to plan, how to understand, uh, turn the map around, right? Those types of tools. They can sound really easy, but they obviously take a lot of work, and they've taken a lot of work on yourself. Uh, I, besides watching this pod, I, I hope that people will think about that. If maybe you'll think about, you know, is there a way of creating a little guide that people can can learn from, almost like a professional advancement? Because there's a lot of people working with it, people that we know. Scott Moore, for example, is doing amazing work in helping build interpersonal relationships at work. But it sounds really easy and it's really hard. And I think you, you've mentioned that a couple of times here. So giving people the takeaway besides watching here, uh, and this trans just transitions real quick to the question uh, that Jeff put in here of whether there are any recommendations, particularly when we start looking at those elements of ready. Uh, he's specifically highlighting uh, the uh, uh, LGBTQI, et cetera, uh, community, non-binary uh, folks who have lots of different um, identity uh, elements to them. There could be again disability, race, religion, ethnicity, nationality, politics. Um, what? How do you? What do you recommend that people can learn that systematically? Um, whether it's a course, whether it's a book or a TED talk. Uh, what were the tools that you used to sort of understand what the best practices are and what people have done that haven't been so successful? So I'm not the expert learning myself and learning ourselves. We sent our manager of process improvement to school. And um, I believe it was at the University of New Hampshire. She took a program. Yep. Okay. She took, took a program and was able to come back and say, I think we have a lot of opportunity here, even though we thought we were doing better than we were before. And I, I think we were, you know, it's, it's the right, the right spirit, but you don't know what you don't know, and you have to go figure it out because you you don't want to be offensive and you want to be inclusive. And we wanted those things, we just didn't exactly know how to do it. And I'm sure that there's some things that I say with the best of trying to trying to do the best thing that come off not the way that I meant them. I have been played with that my whole life, right? We all have. So um, I'm not the expert, but I will tell you that um, we did source out and seek a program that I attended last night. And I know that it's it's going around the, the Massachusetts right now. And, and people have very different opinions of it because we mentioned before, you know, you've been doing something for 30 years. It's really difficult to think about it a different way. And I have an experience personally in my family about 10 years ago where I had to start thinking about my family members a different way. It was very difficult. I wanted to be a good friend human 100%, but it's taking years of what you knew or you thought you knew and trying to be more open-minded about it. And totally making mistakes, but truly understanding the whys behind it. So the program that we took last night, um, which I can recommend, and we can kind of tie that back in and, and um, give those guys the, the uh, kudos that they deserve, um, was about definitions. And it was about uh, a couple of videos of um, the history of being gay and then a transgender video, uh, how it affects our patients, how it affects our documentation, how it affects our entry notes and our transfer of care. Um, ultimately. And, um, you know, I didn't exactly know what to expect. It was referred to me like, hey, you're looking for this, you should check it out. And it was the first time, and I think it's pretty creative and innovative and needed that um, it, I've heard something specific to first responders and EMS. So I'll definitely give you guys the information. You can tie it into this and we'll loop those guys in if there's interest and, and get people resources. Uh, they did say they were going to send us some as well. But I was 
I, I was ignorant to some of the information and I was really happy that we invested in something like that because I think it makes a world of difference to try to do better. Well, I think that's a perfect capstone. Jeff, I'll ask if there are any other questions in the chat for us, sir. Okay, well, again, perfect capstone. Uh, Danny, besides wanting to thank you for the time uh, and being inspirational in your innovation, I actually want to thank you for caring as deeply as you do. Um, you know, there's a lot of people in this business who have really big hearts, but you have in a very, I think, interesting, inspirational way, tied that heart to concrete steps that you're taking uh, to make things better for folks who are working really hard, hard job. Um, in a busy environment. So, uh, and, and it's not just in Los Angeles, you've been doing that for years. So I think you've got a legacy of that. Uh, that's certainly something I hope you're proud of. Uh, to everybody who's been here, thank you so very much for taking the time with us. Um, this pod will live on and we will be learning from Danielle Thomas for uh, many moons to come. Thank you all, stay safe uh, and have a fantastic rest of your day.